Uh, what got you there with got you got you? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Everyone, it seems, is in need of a strategy. That is why Sean was thrilled to talk with today's guest, Sir Lawrence Friedman. Friedman is the author of Strategy, a history, where he captures the vast history of strategic thinking in his consistently engaging and insightful account of how strategy came to pervade every aspect of our lives. In his behemoth of a book, Friedman gives a brilliant overview of the most prominent strategic theories in history, from David's use of deception against Goliath to the modern use of game theory in economics. This masterful volume sums up a lifetime of reflection on strategy. If you want to learn more about some of the most impactful strategists throughout history, such as the Greeks, Sun Tzu, Machiavelli, then keep listening. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I'm wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. So something I'm always intrigued about by the people that are featured on this show is routines, systems you've implemented throughout the day. What's a typical morning look like? Do you have any routines you usually do? No, my routine involves uh, having breakfast, bringing my wife a cup of coffee, putting the PC on and normally starting writing. Well, that's that's how I start most days when I can, unless I'm going to a meeting or um, 
to a conference or something. But that's how I like to start my days. So I write better in the mornings than uh, I do later on in the day. You mentioned you're writing. How long are you typically writing for in the morning? I'll normally try and write all morning. Um, and if I'm really into it, I'll just carry on. But I start to fade quite quickly in the early afternoon. Um, and then sometimes I pick up again in the evening as well. But the morning's the best time. So do you ever get up during this time or are you solely sitting there writing for a few hours straight? Only for the normal purposes. Um, yeah, I mean, once I'm into it, I'm into it. I'm in a sort of different place and uh, want to carry on while the going's good. I mean, some, uh, obviously, cups of coffee and so on are quite important to the process. Yes, a few cups of coffee, always important to the process. You mentioned you're almost in a, in a different zone, in a different state. Could you describe that? Yeah, um, I mean, I find with writing that it, sometimes, and most people find that it, that it takes sometimes a while to get into. But at some point, uh, you realize you're onto something and the words are coming. Now, you may look back at what you've written and realize that it wasn't half as good as you thought it was when you're writing it. Um, but you sort of know what's coming uh, and the story's unfolding in front of you. I, I, I'm not the sort of writer who uh, has it all planned out beforehand. So... Uh, I do depend on the sort of uh, 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 it coming to me as I'm writing. I, I surprise myself as much as anybody else if if, if it if it's going well. Uh, and while that's happening, uh, I'm everything else is almost blocked out. I'm, I'm impervious to uh, what's going on around me. And I've always, in fact, been able to concentrate writing in some quite peculiar situations uh, with when there's. Uh, with young children or even in meetings and so on. I could, if I could if I could get there with a pen and paper in front of me, I could still uh, I could still get something down. That's absolutely fascinating. So when you are planning your your day that you're going to go write, do you have any general guideline on what you're trying to accomplish that day, or you just sit down and write whatever flows to you? I think once you're into a piece of work, I think you'll find many people who. Uh, I mean, I, I sort of write for a living now, but much of my career I didn't. Um, I think you find many people who do are actually going back to what they wrote yesterday. Uh, I mean, once you once you know, if you're writing a book, uh, the uh, what I spend most of my time, or much of my time to start with anyway, is going back over what I did the day before. Uh, and it's partly polishing, it's partly seeing the direction of the argument, partly just getting yourself into it. This is why it's quite hard to write if it if it's spasmodic, if you you know, if you if you have to go off and do other things and then get back into it again. Uh, and why a real burst of continual you know, days on end when you can just get into something, it tends to be much more productive than those days uh, spread across months. You said you put pen to paper. Was that a figure of speech, or do you actually all of your writing done with pen and paper? No, no, no. So now all my writing is done. No, not all. Ninety-five percent of it is done on a keyboard. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I, I'm old enough to remember, as they say, when when you couldn't do that. And um, I'd say for quite until not that far long ago. Um, Whereas it would seem a bit rude 
to start picking out a pulling out a laptop and start banging away when you're supposed to be taking uh, uh, what other people are saying at some significant meeting seriously or in a conference or something. I I could sort of sit quite happily scribbling away uh, on a pad of paper uh, and then later on I'd, I'd type it up. Uh, I mean I was in, I was in you know, I was in senior management in the university uh, and middle management probably all of my career. So uh, I needed uh, I needed to make the most of my time. No, I asked because the, the book of yours that I first became introduced with you, Strategy, it's a 751-page behemoth. So I figured your hand would have been awfully tired after writing that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, um, some of it was written by Han because uh, <clears throat> some of it was written in the 90s. Um, I, I, I think... Again, if if you're trying to think through an idea and and and, and it's working, then it doesn't really matter whether whether you're uh, whether you're scribbling on a pad or, or or typing. But I think again, those who don't remember the olden days uh, can forget just how difficult it used to be to edit your own work. Um, you know, the, if you used to work on an old typewriter, uh, the thought of putting in another, a new footnote. Uh, was horrendous uh, because all the other footnotes immediately became wrong. So the beauty of what you can do now with uh, with Word and so on is uh, extraordinary. I mean, it, it just gives you fr- uh, sort of a freedom and an ability to, uh, when I started uh, my academic career, it was just unobtainable. You mentioned you started strategy in the 90s, and I'm I'm always fascinated by people's idea generation and, and research process into their books. So so what did the, the process look like for making this book come to be? Well, I don't I mean I sort of knew the book I wanted to write from quite early on in the 90s. I wanted to write a book that brought together in some way my my three interests. I don't I I'd made my career, if you like, writing about military, in particular nuclear strategy. So I, you know, I was au fait with all, all of that literature, um, and found it fascinating. Uh, from my sort of radical student days, uh, I got very interested in politics, and uh, it always intrigued, intrigued me why, uh, how those. Uh, largely from the left, but anybody who wanted to append the, the political system uh, because they didn't have the resources evidently available to do it, yet had incredibly ambitious objectives, how they thought that through. It seemed to me uh, a real challenge for any, any strategic thinking, and one reason why the left left writing is just full of writing on strategy uh, because it's it's such a challenging thing for them. And then I, I found myself in management and uh, I'd read some of the management literature, but I'd had to deal with a lot of the issues that uh, appeared in, in, in the textbooks, as it were, um, at first hand. I, I mean, by the time I uh, I finished, uh, I was uh, vice principal, sort of, bit sort of provosty sort of position at King's College London. So I, I was, you know, involved in some quite big decisions. Uh, so. Uh, I'd had some practical experience myself, and so that explained um, uh, sort of the third strand in the book. Uh, 
But it took me an awfully long time to work out how I could do this. Uh, and there were a lot of false starts. And I think I often find um, with projects like this is uh, it's the first thing you've got to do is to realize there's no quick fix. I mean, that there's no shortcuts. That you, you've just got to get into the material and find your own angles. Uh, and then it starts to work. But if you, uh, if, if you just try to you know, read a couple of books or remember things you've read sometime in the past, uh, to put down some clever thoughts, it never works, and, and you've got uh, so uh, I, had, I had to accept that this was going to be a big deal and was going to take me quite a while if I was ever going to finish it. Could you dive deeper on that? I think that's where where the true gold in a lot of great work lies: that ability to continue on those false starts and keep pushing through. I'd love for you just to expand upon that. Well, I, I think I'd always been aware of the fact that when you're, uh, when you have what people call writer's block, where, when you know you sit there trying to uh, work something through and it's just not working, and you know one cup of coffee leads to another, and you find yourself playing solitaire or something, um, then um, it's because there's a structural problem. It's not because your brain's not working properly. As such, uh, or you, you've you've lost the ability to write. You're trying to say something which can't be said, and you've got to unwind. Uh, and as you un or did rewind, and as you do that, uh, you're going to lose some uh, stuff that you think, as you wrote it, was probably really classy, um, but it's got to go. And that's really hard to do. And I think that's um, so. The in the inclination is to persevere, and then there's a sort of moment, almost of liberation, where you realise that's pointless. And uh, you, you've got to go back and start again, uh, or at least go back to, to, to where the problems began. And I think, that, so I, I strongly believe, this is what, you know, advice I would give to students as well, that uh, structure is really important, in, especially in academic writing, I think in, in any writing. Uh, you can sort of do streams of consciousness and then edit it. Uh, but thinking quite thinking hard all the time about where your argument is going, um, what are the connections you've missed? What are the connections you've suddenly seen? How can you make them work? Have you uh, uh, is is a bit you're working out on now really better at some other place earlier on where where you've just suddenly realised uh, that there is. Uh, uh, they're actually talking about the same thing from a slightly different direction. But, you know, th those are the sort of decisions that uh, are important and, and where you have to be very honest with yourself when, when you're writing. And in the end, you know, I think you've got to be your own most severe critic uh, as well as you know, your own intended audience in a way. If, if you can't satisfy yourself, you're not going to satisfy anybody else. You said perseverance is pointless. I'd love for you to expand upon when that happens to you, when you understand your brain might need a break. You mentioned solitaire. Is there anything you actually do? <laughs> Solid. Um, I um, go for a walk, uh, leave it for a while, do something else. I often like to have a couple of projects on the go. And sometimes when one bit of writing isn't working, you actually need to leave it for a while, despite what I, I said uh, not long ago. Uh, do something else, uh, and then when you come back to it, you can see it with more honest eyes and, uh, and freshly. Uh, so, 
uh, I, I think it, it's you know eking out a few more sentences in the morning uh, because you can't bear the thought of, of losing what you spent three previous mornings doing. Is is uh, it, 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 that's what perseverance is? But but you've, at some point you've got to realize that it's not going to get you anywhere. That's one of the the realizations I've come to the past few years. Sometimes it's better to step away for a little while, clear the mind. You mentioned you like having different projects going on. I'm interested about your note taking process. When you're going throughout life, are you taking down notes on all sorts of things, or are you pretty specific in what you're writing down? No, I, 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 I've been terrible at that. I've often thought I should, I've often thought I should do much more of it. I, I'm, uh, I mean, I know all sorts of people who've got notebooks full of neat handwriting with uh, um, uh, all sorts of acute observations that'll they'll draw upon later day, but mine are just full of doodles and scribbles and. Uh, and then I forget anyway. No, I immerse myself really. When, uh, uh, so I like to do my research as I write. Um, that I know that there's stuff uh, out there that uh, is relevant. And again, it's, it's it's why writing these days is so much easier than it used to be. So. Uh, if I, if I think that, that, that there should be a connection, I just take a, an example from uh, from strategy. Um, you know, Max Weber and Leo Tolstoy were writing were around at the same time. I, I was aware, possibly, that Tolstoy was of interest to Weber, but you can Google that. You can then find articles, uh, and then while the idea is still fresh. I would make notes sufficient to, to my purposes on that. Now, you know, in the olden days, again, that would have required trips to the library and a sudden realization that, uh, uh, well, I would have just found it difficult to find anything. I'd have to look through numerous journals in the hope of coming across something. But these ways that you, you can come across something very quickly, decide whether it's of value or not. So I, I, I don't tend to have lots of notes upon which I draw. Uh, what I do is uh, I, I read a lot around the subject. Stuff, some stuff sticks, some stuff doesn't. And then when I, uh, as I need it uh, during the course of writing, I'll go to the bookshelf or uh, try to find the relevant article and, and work on it there and then. I, I don't believe in doing lots of research before I start writing. You mentioned you immerse yourself, and I think that's one of the, the true important things to do to, to dive deep and really understand things. So when you're, you're planning a book, do you have that total idea in your head, and then as something hits you, that's when you immerse yourself, or are you immersing yourself hoping to find little nuggets to pull on? I have a general idea about what I want to write about, um, and... Um, I mean, I don't start with the introduction and work on. Uh, the bit I the bit I start with may end up being right in the middle of the book. Um, it's just what grabs me at the time. So with the strategy book, um, I mean, I started with the military stuff because that was stuff that I knew, um, and then I I got sort of playful, I suppose. I mean, I just thought, wouldn't it be? Uh, I saw that a lot of the military stuff kept on going back to classical times. So I thought, well, I better look at that too. So I got into that. And then um, 
for quite separate reasons. I'd uh, uh, done a, I describe a sort of a riff on on the ten plagues of strategy, coercive diplomacy, um, and so I started looking more. Uh, the, uh, the Bible as a source of strategy. So it, it's one thing leads to another. Uh, I mean, that was an unusual book in the, in the it was it was quite self indulgent, and uh, I had a very uh, tolerant editor uh, who didn't mind the increasing length and sort of diversity of topics I was covering. And with other books, you went, you, you you wouldn't in a sense be as playful as I was with that one. But uh, it. it, it the process still is similar. That, that I'll start at a place I feel I've got something to say, and then uh, let one thing lead to another. It's not disciplined. I mean, other people are much more disciplined than I am. Uh, I'm disciplined in the fact that I can concentrate and uh, will push myself. But I'm not. Uh, I don't think uh, I've got it all. I don't. I don't. I just don't have it all sorted out in my head before I start. We're talking a lot about routines, things that you implement and do. I'd be interested to hear, is there anyone you've researched or written about that just did something so unique in their daily routine? Yeah. Um, you know, if you're looking at the people who interested me, again, looking at the strategy book, um, they were people who... Uh, were often in the thick of things. I mean, they, they were they were prompted by events, so they didn't really have routines. It was events that excited them and made them think differently, uh, and, and you know, made them um, in those days put pen to paper with a view to trying to influence those events. Um, and so that, that's a lot of the people I've studied. I mean, I've listened to some of your your podcasts, and I'm always impressed by these people who, uh, you know, sort of get up early, do their meditation, uh, eat granola, and uh, go on, go 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 on some fitness machines. Um, and no doubt that's helpful to them. Uh, um, but a lot of the people I've been interested in are in pretty working in pretty chaotic conditions a lot of the time, with no idea how the events would. Uh, are going to in, unfold, and that what gives the sort of drama and excitement to their writing, um, and uh, and the challenges they face. I think it's one reason why sort of military affairs and political affairs are different in many cases, not all from business affairs, where uh, or you know, manage, sort of management I did at the university, where there was a routine. I mean, there were things that you just had to do, had to get over meetings you had to attend on a regular basis. Um, and uh, you know, they weren't very exciting, but it had to be done. But I think if you know, a lot of the stuff I really enjoy writing about um, is driven by events, not by routines. And that's one of my favorite things about having these conversations. You mentioned all these people wake up, jump on the, the fitness machine, and then hearing your perspective, some of these other people's perspectives, it's almost like we have this self-indulgent feedback loop hoping to hear what we think should be done, and it's refreshing. You mentioned a lot of these people were made to think differently. And I'm intrigued about, during your research, what idea made you think the most differently after reading it? That's a good question. Um, I think, um, so there's a, I mean, I won't sort of say these sort of, you know, sort of big epiphanies, but there's um, a couple of sort of, uh, well, I mean, let me give two, two examples. 
for and a, they're a bit academic-y, but but I think they um, they're, they're relevant to sort of broader discussion of strategy. I mean, the first um, was the management literature itself. I mean, like a lot of people, I've been quite sniffy about it um, because I sort of moved into quite senior positions uh, and the stuff I'd read, which tended to be sort of airport bookstore stuff, um, I thought had been sort of statements of the blinding obvious. Uh, and I'd been on a couple of courses and so on, but I'd never really been one for the management gurus. Uh, and when I started doing my research, nothing really made me change my opinion of a lot of the sort of guru literature. Uh, but then I started to read other stuff, and I realized a lot of this was really quite good. You know, and it wasn't, it, 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 and that I'd been wrong to be quite so dismissive of it um, because it was. Uh, people who'd um, who had experience and thought hard about it or people I've been vaguely aware of say like Peter Drucker uh, who possibly wrote too much but he but 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 you know some of his early stuff was was so good so so original um, that I was really pleased that I'd uh, I'd forced myself to, to to look at it properly uh, and take it seriously um, so uh, and I and as I was doing this while still, uh, still to a, coming to the last stages, but still to still to, to a degree engaged in, in management, I did it did make me think differently about what I was doing um, in my everyday work. And the second example, which is quite relevant to a lot of the work I've done, is is that as you may know, in in the uh, in the social sciences. Um, there's great debates about the role of quantification, um, about you have to measure everything and, and then do your statistical analysis to produce reliable conclusions that will give you causal theories and, and so on. And uh, I'd, uh, again, been very uh, irritated with a lot of this, not, be, not because I was scared of the equations. I'd actually done maths up to a first year of uh, university, but uh, it just seemed to me to miss out all, on all the stuff that you couldn't measure and uh, produced conclusions with an illusion of precision. Um, and, and the last big book I did on, uh, it's called uh, The Future of War, A History, which is about the way people have thought about the future of war. Um, I started off uh, going to prove how, how bad this stuff was. And I think a lot of the early stuff was pretty, pretty, pretty grim. Um, but the more I looked, the more I realized that a lot of the younger academics that actually were well aware of the pitfalls and had, and were managing to combine um, serious quantitative analysis when it was needed with uh, with history and, and political theory and, and uh, what is often described as qualitative um, work. I'm doing some really good stuff. So... Uh, it, again, it was it was a warning uh, not to get too prejudiced about bodies of literature that you think you know, but until you actually get into them, you realise you don't know very well. Uh, and, and I think I think that would be the, the lesson of both of those examples. So I'm far more interested and tolerant in in in, in some of the new, new social science than. I might have been before. Are you always looking for new ideas? Yeah. 
I mean, I, I, I can't understand people who write the same book over and over again. Uh, and I, I you know, there's been um, some examples recently, and I, and I just, uh, I, I mean, you can make it, you can make a pretty good career from one big idea, uh, which you, you keep on recasting. I mean, people, academics have done that, or you know, you're the one thing for which you'll be known. But uh, it's boring. Um, uh, you know, I, it, 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 there's, there's, there's lots of good stuff out there. And also, I'm, I mean, I, I, you know, I've been in a very odd uh, university department, uh, Department of War Studies, which is, you know, there's not many of them, uh, and they're naturally interdisciplinary. So I've always worked with people from other disciplines, and I find that immensely refreshing. So, I mean, quite a long time ago now, I, I did a book on, on the theory of deterrence, um, which is a big thing in uh, for, for on nuclear strategy, military strategy. Uh, but there's a whole literature there on in criminology, um, and since I started reading that, then you you've got new ideas coming from it. So I th- uh, I think and keeping your mind open, but also um, being prepared to take the plunge into an unfamiliar literature. Um, stuff that you know will, may take a bit of effort to, to get your head around is is the best way of keeping yourself fresh. Now you really have me intrigued. This is one of my favorite things to do. It's probably a big reason I I have this podcast to to hear different ideas, surround myself with people from other disciplines. Who else do you surround yourself with? I, I would love if a few other examples popped into your head here. In what sense? Who else? Thought? In terms of you said you love finding out things from other disciplines okay so well i mean i uh i've all partly you know my job at one point was to be what you would see as a dean of a social science uh faculty so i uh i had to read lots of stuff then and just be able to stay abreast of what people were doing so i've I've always had a, a pretty um interested uh, reach in in in, in terms in, in social sciences, and um, I've always found literature an interesting source of ideas. And people don't use it enough because the great fiction writers um, have enormous insights into uh, into human behaviour and political forces and so on. These days, um, I I I don't use Facebook, but I do use Twitter. I find that. Uh, extraordinarily helpful in discovering things that I wouldn't otherwise be reading. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of discussion about how social media is used, but to me it's been uh, wonderful as, as, a, uh, as a way of discovering what younger academics are doing. And, uh, and suddenly somebody recommends something that I'd never have even thought of looking at before and uh uh off you go and it's uh it's a great read you and i are on the same page with the the benefits and usefulness of twitter i i find myself having to to limit myself on it because i find so many new and interesting articles that i just have a massive folder of new literature to read i'm also interested in, in things you've read that have stood the test of time for you Let's talk specifically maybe some of that management literature you brought up a few minutes ago. Anything besides Peter Drucker's work that you'd recommend? <laughs> um, 
Well, Mint's book, I, 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 uh, I think that was the first thing I read that um, I could see immediate applications to uh, other work that I'd done in, a complete, in the military sphere. Um, and it's quite interesting that that, that is now, uh, others have now picked up this um, idea of strategy as learning. Uh, so that was uh, Richard Rummel. I've been impressed with. I think his work is, uh, is understanding that a lot of strategy is really bad, uh, and a lot of strategic ideas can be quite dangerous um, because I think far too much of the the, the business strategy literature uh, was uh, you know read this and you two could make a hundred million dollars, uh, uh, and. You know, when you read a lot of it, no one no, it won't, and uh, it, it actually is, it can get you into deep trouble. So, uh, I, I mean, there, there are you know particular authors um, that, that, that I've enjoyed that I you know I, I would recommend other people uh, to look at. I'm I'm thinking about someone a couple years out of college. We have a lot of young listeners of the show. They're going down the management route. You have direct experience. Any just big overarching advice you'd have for someone like that? I mean, academic management is is, is not that dis- different from other forms, but but academics are a funny bunch. So you've got to be prepared to deal with some quite huge egos um, uh, who always like to have the last word. So you do need very specific skills in the academic world. The best advice I was ever given. A relatively young age um, was if you want anything to be done, keep your ego out of it. Um, that as soon as um, you worry about, uh, uh, you know, as soon as you start taking offence or worrying about people getting cross or uh, wanting to make a point about how clever you are and how authoritative you are and so on, uh, then you're losing sight of what you're actually trying to achieve. So that was. Um, a, Advice I've always tried to follow is not is not was not to uh, uh, is not to get too egotistical. The other um, the other advice, not that I was given, but I, I give to others, is be prepared to admit you're wrong. Um, I, my approach to most things is I felt I should take the lead. I was in leadership position, so I had to had to take the lead. Um, and I would often do so in uh, in quite apparently decisive way, but make it clear to anybody who disagreed that they must say so and why. And there's only any point in asking people to do that and going through what is often laughingly called consultation uh, if you're actually prepared to change your mind. Otherwise, people see it as fraudulent. Um, so... I think never, you know, I, obviously you get things wrong because you've missed something. I and mean, the, the, the great, um, the great benefit of, of working with with bright people is they're going to point these things out to you. And if you just ignore them again because you feel your your ego is under attack, if you if you don't get your way, um, then you're going to end up with some bad policies. So um, I think, uh, and it's quite hard often to because you know, you've often invested quite a lot in being right to accept that, that you've got something wrong. But I think unless you can do that, then uh, you're never going to get people to give you honest advice. That's some sound advice you just gave there. 
especially around getting things wrong. I'm intrigued though, now being able to look back over a lot of successes throughout your career, what do you think are some of the things that you just ended up doing right, whether that be listening to great advice, surrounding yourself with good people, anything you've been able to articulate over the years? Uh, well, I mean, I think surrounding yourself, I mean, never being afraid of being having bright people around you. I mean, the most of the uh, management failures I saw were, were by people who, who were scared of subordinates who were cleverer than they were. Or they they feared were cleverer than they were. Uh, so you know, being so, I mean, my, my you know, when building up university department and then a school, my basic instinct was if I saw a bright person, to try to find a way of getting them. <laughs> I wanted that one. I wanted them with me. Um, and um, also, you've got to take pleasure in, in the success of other people. Um, and this is especially true in a university. Um, I mean, you mark your success by other people doing well, and uh, if you sort of get consumed with jealousy as that happens, then again you're you're uh, um, uh, you're not going to be successful. I mean, you, you know, the mentoring and encouraging part of of the job I always thought was the most rewarding. Um, and even now, when I go you know back to my my college and my old department and so on, uh, I can see things going on that I know that I gave a push to. Um, and I find that immensely satisfying. So, um, you know, you work through other people, and, and if, so you rely on them to succeed, and, it, and you, you fail if they fail. Um, I think the, the other thing, which is, again, probably relevant, certainly in an academic career, is it always helps when you're asking somebody to do something if you've done it yourself already. Um, this is why. Uh, despite uh, being extremely busy at the time, uh, I was kept on writing and, and doing academic work because uh, it, it wasn't good enough to, to, to show that I'd done it at some point. I, it was important to show that I could still do it. And I knew the problems that they were facing and could talk about the uh, you know, who's writing what and what the sources were and so on. So I think it's if you're just sort of barking orders at people without any understanding of what it takes to implement those orders, then you can't be too surprised if, uh, if it all goes wrong. Something you brought up is the importance of surrounding yourself with, with the brightest people. And it's one of my favorite things. When, when I see what I deem as greatness or uh, quality I admire, I try to dive deeper with that person to figure out more. This is the question I ask and people seem to hate answering. They never want to answer. Who do you think might be the brightest person that you've come across in all your work? That's an impossible question. Um, I, I mean, I, 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 but they're different because they're different. I mean, I, I, I've got, you know, some people I'm really proud of um, to see what, what they've achieved. And it's not just brightness. I mean, it's not just being intellectually clever. It's, uh, it's other qualities of character as well that have got them where they are today. Um, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I've a former student of mine um, who came to uh, the UK from uh, from Nigeria. Who was? Um, I mean, she she'd been kind of a reasonable academic record. She did uh, okay uh, when she when she came to do our master's program, uh, but. You know, she, she had real commitment to the field, 
uh, real perseverance, um, went on to do some work for the United Nations, set up new programs of for women's leadership I- in Africa, and is now um, sort of vice president for international affairs at my college. And I get enormous pride from her work. I mean, I know I helped her at certain times, was able to help, but you know, by God, she did it by herself. And I, but it's not just you know being clever. I mean, she is clever, but 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 that's uh, that's only a real one part of the story. Um, and I've got you know other students who've. I mean, you know, the nice thing about being in the academic world and re- reaching a certain age is is that you've got you know, wherever I go, I can see lots of my students who have achieved great things. Uh, sometimes in the books they've written, sometimes in their teaching, sometimes in moving to management positions. But uh, I think this one. Uh, just because of the, of the sort of the toughness of her early upbringing is, is one that uh, gives me most pleasure. No, thank you for expanding upon the question there. Yeah, I don't necessarily need a specific, but it's, it's just fun to hear about what your inputs are, what you deem as interesting qualities. A few minutes ago, you were talking about ego. And something that's come up a lot on this show is people's ego changes over time. They usually start off egotistical, and as they get older, they drop more of their ego. What do you think's changed the most for you throughout your career? It's hard to say. I mean, I started off. Um, I mean, don't want to overdo it, but you know, I, I, I um, let's say lower middle class from from the northeast of England. Um, which, if you know, the UK is 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 a, is a pretty out of the way sort of place. So I, it made me sort of a bit sort of left wing, but also um, uh, a, a bit unsure, you know, lacking confidence with people who'd been to better schools. And my school was a good one, but it wasn't you know, one of the top private schools. And, it, uh, and uh, I just scraped into university and so on. Um, so getting confidence, I think, is is really important. It took, uh, I know I always had a uh, a degree of confidence in my ability to write and talk. Um, it took a while before I actually had confidence that I was good at what I that I was good at what I was doing. That I really could, uh, I, I could, uh, I could get away with it, and, and, and that. Uh, uh, if people said it was good, maybe that they were right rather than just being nice to me. And um, I think once you've got that confidence, uh, then you really don't need to be um, that pushy or egotistical because you know you know that, that you're working um, on stuff that, that that you can do, and that if you pay attention, that it's probably going to be okay. And then you make mistakes. I mean, you know, it's uh, it also it just having confidence can also lead you into hubris and uh, thinking you can do things when you really you can't. So I, I make mistakes and you and you learn from them. But I think that that's the main thing. And then partly because I suppose I stayed in the same institution for my you know, for my career, like most of my career, although in different roles. Um. Just by simply by having been around a long time and knowing how the institution worked and how to get things done, you can, you can have an authority that uh, means that if you say to somebody, you know, I think we should do it this way, 
then they're going to listen to you. Uh, and uh, so that's a nice thing to have. But as I say, the, the danger with that is, is is that they don't contradict you enough. So I think, uh, you know, all in all, I think being confident, being able to speak with a degree of authority is something you acquire over time. Uh, and it's a nice position to be in, but it can also set you, you up for a fall. So unless you're uh, I, 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 I think anybody who's totally convinced in themselves uh, is heading for trouble. You've always got to have that nagging doubt about yourself. That, that, that uh, uh, be aware that you're, however good you think you may be, you're capable of, of making some horrendous error. I think for anybody who's, who's researching, uh, you know, there's, there's too many stories around of of people with, with well-established names. Uh, who suddenly find that they've uh, lifted a chunk of somebody else's writing, possibly inadvertently, uh, and that's their career gone. So, you know, if if you get super confident in yourself, you're just setting yourself up. How old were you when you developed this newfound confidence? <laughs> um, I suppose quite young, um, because first I got quite involved in student politics, which is a uh, was an odd place to be in the late 60s and early 70s, but I learned a lot from that. But um, I was running a small unit in a think tank in uh, by my late 20s, um, and then became uh, a, full, a full professor uh, in my early 30s and running a department. So um, I had to develop it pretty quickly. Um, Otherwise, I would have been eaten alive. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, on that basis, had a pretty good career. It, it, but I was lucky. I mean, you know, timing's a lot of these things, getting these, you know, getting a job uh, that, that allows you to do the things you want to do uh, it, it can just be fate, it can just be fortuitous. So, uh, but, 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 you know, I, I've been running stuff really since my late 20s uh so you i don't think you can ask people to do things unless you've got a degree of confidence so you know from them what you're discussing now makes me think of a sentence in in the opening paragraph of your book and that sentence is having a strategy suggests an ability to look up from the short term and the trivial to view the long term and the essential to address causes rather than symptoms, to see the woods rather than trees. It's a line I, I absolutely love, and I'm just so intrigued about what you were just mentioning. What did you think was going to be the long term for you when you were very young, say early 20s? Uh, certainly not uh, being a professor of war studies. Um, I wanted to go into politics, to be honest. Um, uh, I, uh, I was quite activist. Uh, I was always too moderate for my own good. Um, so in those radical days, I had the irritating ability to see another side to an issue and too much of a sense of irony. And I think they uh, they sort of worked against me. Um, but I sort of lost my appetite for that for a variety of reasons uh, by the time I, I was working on my PhD. Um, and I mean, my, I mean, I was very lucky. I, I, I came, uh, my interest had been in domestic politics rather than international politics. 
Um, but I started to get interested in in uh, these big issues of, of nuclear strategy and so on. But my real good fortune was coming to Oxford and having uh, somebody who's actually still alive, uh, Michael Howard, uh, who's one of the sort of great military historians of our age, uh, as my supervisor. And um, so I could actually pinpoint the moment when I worked out what I wanted to do because I discovered this man who I hadn't heard about before was my supervisor and thought, well, at the very least, I ought to read his books. So I went off and found a collection of his essays and you know, I sort of read it, read from start to finish, uh, you know, started, started at sort of two in the afternoon and was still going two in the next morning. And, uh, well, this is what I want to do. Um, I just loved the way he addressed issues, could write about uh, the moves in, into sort of considerable detail, but then could uh, capture a whole period of history in, in, in a few paragraphs. So, uh, and, and he became my mentor as well. So I was very fortunate in, in, in that regard. Uh, I mean, he, he, uh, he knew everybody. Uh, he, he always gave me good advice. Um, and, and that's why, I, you know, I take mentoring seriously myself. I mean, I, I was very fortunate. Uh, and it made all the difference. So I, I know exactly when I just, when I, I, I changed my mind about what I was going to do. I'm so fascinated that you just mentioned you've been able to pinpoint that specific moment you knew what you were going to do. And maybe it's just my my lack of experience and, and haven't come in contact with enough people who've been able to do that. Can you describe that experience more? How do you even have the ability to understand that moment and, and know what to do next then? Because it was a, a moment when, you know, I, I, I'd, I was pretty well versed in, um, in political theory. I've been reading quite a lot about it. I got interested in a lot of the military literature and some of the nuclear literature, but it hadn't really come together in my head. And um, I hadn't quite worked out a point of view, not in the sense of, of uh, opinions, but just a perspective, you know, how one would approach these issues. Um, and Michael Howard was, uh, was is a man who started, I mean, had a, an amazing war record, but then um, started as a straightforward military historian. But because he was in, um, uh, based near what was then the center of the, of the uh, newspaper industry, he kept on being called upon to comment on contemporary events because he was a lecturer and then a professor in war studies. He'd set up the department I went on to run. Um, and um, so he, he, uh, he had a, a real historical sensibility, uh, but was prepared to use that to comment on contemporary issues. He also had a beautiful writing style. Um, so I hadn't read anything like it before. But it touched on lots of things that I already knew interested me and wanted to talk about, um, and um, I, so, so it was. Just, and it was. It's not afraid of, of taking positions on issues as well without being uh, sort of ranting or polemical. So I just thought, well, this is this is how to do it, and. Um, and I've still got you know the book with with all my annotations in it and and so on. It, it really was a um, sort of revelation about how something could be done. You mentioned Michael Howard is this great mentor of yours. 
that's a big hot topic for a lot of people looking for a mentor that they can learn from. What did you do really well, both to to make him want to mentor you, and then just to to learn as much from him as possible? <laughs> well, um, I remember the first thing he said to me was, "Good God, you're not an American." Uh, <laughs> um, because most of his students were American. Brits weren't going into his field at the time. So he was immensely relieved to find somebody from the UK who actually wanted to work on this stuff. I mean, this was sort of, you know, the sort of Vietnam generation and all of that. People weren't, didn't want to study military affairs. And I remember in one of my early supervisions, uh, him, uh, he had these wonderful rooms at All Souls, Oxford, uh, All Souls College in Oxford, which is is um, almost a caricature of uh, what people imagine uh, Oxford to be like. Um, so surrounded by books all over the place. I was in awe of all of that. Uh, and I remember having a supervision when some journalists rang him up and he started to talk about whatever effort was going on at the time and said, well, if this goes on much longer, I'm going to have to charge for this. And I thought, gosh, I wish I would love to be able to say that one day. Um, and um, so. He was somebody who, um, again, was very confident in himself uh, and not afraid. Uh, I mean, he, he could do some quite scathing put-downs. Um, but when I needed support, he was always there. And so when I came, I, I did a lot of my research in the States. And, you know, I came to the U.S. armed with letters to almost everybody of importance because he knew them. Um, so. Um, you know, other people were really helpful to me too, as well, but he was sort of the role model, and um, you know, was keen to help me. Uh, as he'd been keen to help many other people, it wasn't just me at all. I wasn't his, you know, I wasn't his favourite. There were a lot of other people he, who, who he also helped, and um, because I think once once you accept that that, that a mentoring role. Um, then you know there's going it's not hard to find a number of people with whom you know even a one short conversation can make a difference um and sometimes conversations you forget that they reminded you remind you of later on oh you told me to do this and uh, here i am now and i don't even remember telling them that but it, but it's great that they <laughs> that the advice worked for them um so um but it's a, I mean, it's a relationship, you know, that, that continues to my day. I mean, he's he's, he's ninety six ish, and uh, but still all there intellectually. And somebody I, you know, I try to go and see every every couple of months. Uh, so it was a particularly close relationship. A few minutes ago, you said you had an irritating ability to see the other side of things, yeah. and how important is that? those opposing views, both in your own life and then also some of the great military leaders throughout our time, being able to listen to some of their close advisors who had different opinions. How essential is that? Oh, I think it's really important. Uh, I, I've, um, I think if you, um, you know, if you grow up and you're not wholly sure about where you stand on anything, whether it's about religion or politics or whatever, then, you, you know, you've got, you should have competing voices in your head anyway. Um, I was used to say to, to students that, you know, we'll know, you, we'll know how well you're doing if you can give a pretty convincing exposition 
of a view with which you totally disagree. Um, because only if you can do that can you counter arguments with which you disagree. You've got to understand it. Otherwise, you just keep on missing the point and, uh, and your, any objections you may have can be brushed off. So I, I, I've always thought um, a sort of degree of empathy, I think is probably the right word, is, uh, is essential. Um, and as I've said before, sometimes also they may be right. Uh, so there's always that shock when you realise they're, they're right and you're wrong. Uh, and it happens. I think in terms of... Um, I think one of the things about military strategy, and I'd say it's probably true about a lot of political strategy as well, the difficult thing is um, there's so much... I think there's a, well, there's, there's a point at which you're trying to formulate your ideas, trying to work out what to do, when you need to um, listen widely and think hard about what competitors, rivals, enemies, or whatever might also be trying to do and then there's a point where you've decided what to do and you've told everybody what, what's going to happen and it's fixed and then if you keep on having doubts after that you're going to get into trouble which is why it's important to really look hard before you make a final decision and i think if you look at a lot of uh great you know in second world war history um uh, I mean, they spent a lot of time, Montgomery and, and Rommel, uh, they spent a lot of time thinking about what, what each other was likely to be doing. Um, and um, sometimes they got it right, sometimes they got it wrong, but, but it was important to them, at least helping them formulate some ideas. And sometimes it doesn't even matter if you're wholly right about what they might do, because you can't know for sure. Uh, but it gives you something upon which to start developing your ideas, to think things through. So, um, but once you've made up your mind, um, then indecision, uh, shifting tack, and so on, uh, unless you know, because of because of events that, that force you to do so, it's just going to undermine your authority. So, getting things sorted out before the big decisions are made is really important. And then, when you've made the decisions, you, you know, normally you've got to live with them. Uh, and, and in you know military terms, that, that that's a hell of a lot. And um, you know, you you can sort of, if you look at someone like Robert E. Lee, who's coming back into the news. Um, I mean, he he uh, uh, he was very good at. I mean, his great strength was always in anticipating what his opponents might do um, and where their weaknesses was. Uh, until he got it wrong uh, uh, at Gettysburg. Um, uh, and he realized he got it wrong. Uh, his judgment left him. But, you know, up to that point, it, it had all gone well. So, you know, that's, that's the problem, that, that you, uh, you, I can't say you make mistakes. You've always got to realize you're going to make mistakes. But at some point, you've got to make a decision and stick with it. In, in, in academic, that's why academics make terrible politicians. Often because because they're not very good at uh, at being so stubborn that, uh, that that they won't budge even when they've made a decision which may not be uh, absolutely perfect and oh gosh that's a good point I haven't thought about that um, when everybody's 
busy acting upon the previous decision. You, you know, you, the, the 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 time to listen to other people and take take counsel is before the big decision is made. But academics are bad at that. I just realized the time. Do you have a hard cutoff right now? No, not really. Quite okay. Happy. <laughs> oh, fantastic. You have me mesmerized by this conversation. So you mentioned sorting out before the big decisions are made. It makes me think of a line you brought up by Clausewitz, and that is everything in war is very simple, but the simplest thing is very difficult. So after all of the research you've done 200 years later, does that still hold true? Oh, yeah. Um, I think it goes back to, you know, to the previous quote about, you know, what strategy involved in seeing uh, uh, and seeing the wood and not just trees and so on. Um, the hardest thing is to keep the big picture uh, in view uh, while you know w- working on the problem at hand. Um, and I think, again, one of the hardest things in management is knowing how far to drill down into the detail because because simple things are complicated. You. You, you know, you can say to somebody, "Well, you know, this needs to be done. Can you get it? Make sure it's done," without any idea of what you've just asked somebody to do. Um, and may may just sort of slink away and uh, and feel do, feel they have to do what they can. And then when things are going wrong, you sort of you know, start to drill down yourself and realise there's this problem and that problem that you'd never even thought of. Uh, but you just can't. I mean, you just don't have the time to do that on on most issues. So I think, uh, you know, at any level of decision making, things are complicated enough, and and if you get overwhelmed by the complexity, uh, by trying to second guess everybody else's decision, uh, you just paralyze yourself. There's just too much there. Uh, so it, I think delegate, as most people, I'm sure, other people, I'm sure, have said to you, delegation is really one of the hardest things for precisely that reason. Um, you, you do have to trust other people to manage their particular set of complexities because you've got enough on your plate with your own. Is that something you've become better with over the years? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I, partly because I, I, I took on more, more responsibility, more people reporting to me and, and, and so on. So um, you had to, um, uh, you had to learn the art of delegation. I also, I'm not quite sure, I think of an Americanism that quite explains this, but there's sort of also a point um, in a career where you realize, you know, you know what you can do. You Maybe this is, you've gone, you're now doing the best job you're ever going to get. And um, you don't have, you shouldn't worry anymore about, all the uh, about dressing up difficult decisions, and or I, I got more direct as I got older. Not rude, I hope. No, I would never try to be. I would never believed in being rude or abusive or shouting at people, but certainly would try to get to the point much more quickly than I used to. Uh, uh, I think actually it's one of the things that email does possibly to a fault now. When, when you have to write memos and letters, they they, they, they can get very florid at times and. Uh, lots of unnecessary uh, preliminaries where email tends to make people somewhat more direct and sort of Twitter and WhatsApp even more so. But um, I, I found I, I was getting much more o- over time. I, 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 I just get to the point where this is why we're having this conversation. This is 
this is uh, this is what I think needs doing. These are the objections. What do you think? You can you can get things over quite quickly. At this point in your career, what are some of the other things you're best at? <laughs> I mean, my career in in a, in a way is, is now just writing. That's all I do, uh, and because that's what I enjoy most, and so it's what I'm best at. But that's what I enjoy most. Um, and I can turf up to conferences and make my pitches. Let me say what I was bad at, because, I mean, it makes me sound a bit of a goody-goody, uh, <laughs> if I'm not careful. Um, I could get, I got bored with routines. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of good management is is making sure the routines are going on properly. Um, and, uh if something didn't really engage me intellectually or interest me, um, I could I could let it go, and um, I'm, I can think of things which I'm not at all proud of. Uh, in that case, so I I enjoyed the, I'd say the creative part of management. What I was good at was uh, institution building, if you like, on some, quite a small scale, often, but not, you know, setting up new. Initiatives, getting the right people to run them, which was always key. Um, uh, making sure they were funded, um, enthusing people to do that. I could be quite good on that sort of thing. But once they were set up, um, which is when trouble could often develop, I, I, I could take my eye off the ball. And I think that's uh, uh, so. I, I would that I would criticise myself for. You know, other people were much better. Uh, keeping an eye on the routines, and because uh, a lot, of, you know, a lot of good management is is you know keeping an eye on budgets, for example, um, making sure not too many people are being acquired whose salaries you can't really afford, and these uh, and if you're too excited about the creative stuff, you can you can forget that. Uh, I had to keep on reminding myself, but the fact that I had to remind myself, I'd say that was that was. That was a weakness, but the, the the creative stuff I was quite good at. I feel like I'm talking to myself in the future. You're you're describing <laughs> the way I work, and I, I love the early stage, getting the correct people in place, and making that business more efficient. So, so what do I need to really concentrate on and remind myself of? I keep on coming back to it that we're all fallible, and we're working in imperfect organizations. All organizations are imperfect. All people are fallible, um, and therefore. When people screw up, you um, you should always. I mean, I always try to give people a second chance. I mean, if somebody once told, observed to me that that, that uh, I gave people a a, um, a clean sheet of paper. You know, that the, 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 uh, there was. Uh, I think you just have to accept that the mistake you will make mistakes, and other people will make mistakes, and that's the way you learn and, and pick up. I mean, obviously some. Mistakes are, are, you know, if 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 you're in the area of fraud or criminality or uh, or harassment or whatever, they're, then they're not forgivable mistakes. But a lot of the mistakes are just because of sloppiness or inattention or because you've never confronted something like this before, uh, or you uh, you mix the numbers up or something. And those sort of things shouldn't be career threatening. Um, so, uh, and, and and no, in every in every organisation. I've ever had anything to do with people are always complaining about coordination and uh, 
this bit, the organisation not knowing what the other bit is doing and contradicting each other. And I mean, these things are just the features of organisational life. And I think if you if you accept that, you can make the organisation work a lot better because you're, you're not trying to perfect it. Um, so I, I, I think I mean, so maybe it's a strange way to start with with, with flaws and mistakes, but um, I, I just think it just makes you tolerant. I think tolerance is is quite important. I've never at all been impressed by by managers who who shout a lot. Um, and I, I used to say when I was running a department that, that the only person who can be shouted at is me um, uh, because it didn't matter to me if I got shouted at but, but you know if, if a, a, a well paid academic started shouting at some uh, secretary who hadn't quite understand what he'd been trying to say I, I was very unimpressed uh, so um, I think and then, you know, as part of that, is is discovering what people are really good at, and I think that that's often comes as a surprise, especially when you've worked with people for a long time and you suddenly realise that they've got a knack that um, are, you know they're very good at getting people to work uh, with them. Uh, I had one colleague uh, who I wouldn't necessarily put in charge of anything, but had an extraordinarily creative mind uh, when it came to working through some bureaucratic problems. He just was really good at it. Um, uh, and you know, so, so just seeing what people can do and giving them the chance to do it uh, and, then, and knowing what they can't do, uh, it normally gets the best out of, out of, out of the people in the organisation. So, uh, But that requires, I think, Paying quite a lot of attention to people, getting to know them, you know, chatting with them. I think that was the other thing that I found as time went on that, that actually was quite difficult. That when you, when you're in, uh, you're running a department, say, which is quite smallish, um, you get to know everybody. You know, I know the staff, I know the students, everybody. Uh, and keeping your ear to the ground, you could see a problem coming. Uh, you could tell that two people weren't just weren't getting on for whatever reason it wasn't working, and you had to you could take measures to keep them apart or tell one to get over it, explain how they should deal with the situation. You could deal with it. Um, the more the higher up you get, the more that sort of ground truth starts to elude you. Um, and if somebody's telling you that everything is fine, it's the easiest thing to do is just to believe them. Um, and I used to put a certain amount of effort, but I don't think quite enough, into you know, quite walking the corridors, but just chatting to people to, to, to give them opportunities to tell me if there were things they weren't happy with. Um, and I think that um, I think that that's the that's the biggest problem for senior management. I think, and you know, I've seen it in my study. Never mind. My own experience and studying policy making. I mean, I spent seven years of my recent life on the UK's Iraq inquiry, um, looking at how the mistakes that were made in Iraq, um, and you know, never mind the mistakes that led to the war. A lot of those that, that followed with the occupation and, and so on were the result of people hearing things they wanted to hear, 
um, and not and not being told awkward truths. Uh, and so I think that that is one of the real tasks of senior management is is not to rely too much on the hierarchy to provide them with uh, of evidence that things are not going quite right. Yeah, it's a fine balance to to have the broad vision to be able to push the business forward, and then also understand the the little details that could really impede the the progress. And so I've had experience both in business and sports. I haven't had any within military strategy, but something that I would always hear about growing up, whether that be in sports or in business, is a lot of these leaders and coaches had studied Sun Tzu. How applicable are his lessons, whether it be in business or sports, or is this something that's just been overblown? It's only been overblown. <laughs> Sun Tzu's a great read. Uh, I mean, it's much easier to read than Clausewitz. Um, some, some good aphorisms, which whether you know the, the, the true Sun Tzu scholars will will tell you, we don't properly understand it. But but you know you, what you take out of it. I think the difficulty with Sun Tzu is that um, he's basically saying that if we're if we're cleverer than our opponent, we can win. Um, and you know who who isn't going to go for a strategy that, 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 that for clever people, and uh, a lot of the cleverness is by, based on deception. Um, that, that if the enemy attacks, we we retreat. If the enemy thinks we're about to, if the enemy thinks we're cowards, we've got to be heroic. Whatever the enemy thinks, you have to do the opposite. And this is fine until you know somebody else has also read Sun Tzu. Uh, and they're also doing the wrong thing. They're doing the same thing. You never actually engage at all. Uh, so and it's interesting that, that you know, a lot of the appearances of Sun Tzu are in, um, you know, the, the Sopranos or, 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 or um, Wall Street, where it's always the villains that, that, that find him attractive uh, because it is about deception. Um, a lot of the time. So by all means, uh, read it. I mean, there, there, there is good advice in that. But I think, like all, like all of these things, um, it works because you read something um, and it seems to be applicable to your, to your own situation and things that are already bothering you. If you turn the page, you'd read something else, which isn't, but you ignore that because you found something that seems to work. So, uh, I, I, you know, I... I I uh, I certainly don't tell I wouldn't tell anybody not to read it, but I think the idea that all strategic wisdom is there is is certainly overblown. Something I I really enjoyed you brought up in the book was was game theory, and I would just love to hear your overall thoughts on game theory and and how it can be applied in our overall strategy, whatever it is we're involved in in life. Well, I I mean I have mixed feelings about it. I think as, as many people do. I think game theory was um, extremely influential in the 50s, early 50s. Um, so one of my sort of intellectual heroes is Tom Schelling, uh, who eventually got the Nobel Prize in economics for game theory and its, uh, its applications, particularly in, in nuclear strategy. But Schelling himself w- was very cautious about how he described its value because he was very clear he didn't believe in mathematical proofs of things. I didn't believe it was a science. What he really liked was the two-by-two two matrix, uh, which is, is a pretty good way of presenting problems. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, 
what once you've read a certain amount of game theory, uh, then you sort of see prisoners' dilemmas all over the place, and uh, you can see the paradoxes and uh, and why it might lead people into certain uh, positions. I think the danger of it is that uh, is when people make it such a thing that you get uh, these sort of long analyses with meta games or meta games and um, all to reach a conclusion that a simple bit of thought might have got you to without going through quite the same amount of intellectual effort. So like all of these things, um, it w- I mean, it works best when looking at relatively simple situations. Um, when the, it, you, know, you have to remember that its origins lay in an attempt to develop a theory for poker playing. Uh, that was uh, that was what they were trying to do in situations where what you do depends on your expectations of what somebody else might do, um, and just realizing that that's the game of which you're a part is pretty good. I mean that that, that that's actually quite an insight. Um, uh, so I think in limited terms, it's really helpful. Um, but it, like all of these things, if you make too much of a meal of it, you'll, it, it, uh, you'll spend a lot of time de- developing some elaborate methodologies to come up with possibly some rather banal conclusions. I love being able to see both sides there. I really appreciate yeah. you bringing up the danger in it. I, I could literally spend an entire day with you. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish up here. If you were going to create call it a a round table of advisors of some of the the greatest military strategists that you've studied who would they consist of (laughs) oh god that's a difficult one um well there'd be such an eclectic uh, group that i'm sure they'd spend their time arguing with each other (laughs) so i mentioned shelling who was wrong on a number of things but i just had a completely original take on the world i think partly because game theory told him uh, about the interdependence of decision-making, about the way that your decisions affect the decisions of others, which seems to be the heart of any of any strategy. I think I would bring in von Moltke, uh, who was um, sort of the architect of German unification in, in, the, in the wars of the sort of late 1860s to leading up to the Franco-Prussian War, um, because... He he not only was I mean, understood the importance of the of the staff work not following the rules when the situation changed, but he described strategy as a system of expedience, which I always thought was a good way of thinking about it, about the need to adapt and and, and to think think things through. Going back, you'd probably have to have Clausewitz there, um, though he's quite hard work. Uh, just because he understood the interplay, but he understood the role of chance and friction uh, and the interplay of, uh, of means and objectives and, uh, uh, and, uh, and the importance of, of objectives, what are you trying to do? But, but he understood particularly the uh, friction and, and chance and how things can go wrong. Um, I quite like Wellington, um, I mean, a, a Brit in there, because... Uh, he was um, he was an incredibly good uh, organizer. I mean, he really did the preparation. I think that's probably true of a lot of the British generals is that they weren't um, they, they didn't necessarily have great flair, um, but they 
the because it wasn't we weren't always very good in land battles. They had to do their preparations. Montgomery was an awkward character, so I wouldn't really want him around my table. But was uh, he, he was a clever general for that reason. Um, you know, and I've known. Um, I, I've got to know over the time some some people who've been involved in in, in big strategic decisions, um, and most of them are very reflective about what they've about what they've had to do. I mean, because they're working in an area where people die. I mean, this is you know in the end one of the differences between military strategy and business strategy is that if you get it wrong, uh, people die, and even if you get it right, people are going to die. Um, and that that weighs heavily on people, and so it should. And I think that that produces sort of seriousness in those who've been involved, which is why it's so irritating when you see politicians be very uh, sort of relaxed and cavalier about armed force. I mean, the, the people who do it properly are, no, are never cavalier about it. They're never careless with it. They're never reckless, really. Or some are reckless, but the successful ones aren't. They think very hard about it, which is why you can learn a lot from them. Well, learning a lot is something I truly have done from you and your work, so I can't tell you how much I appreciate this time. I'd love to know, are you working on any new books, anything else that we can look forward to? <laughs> um, well, oddly, um, I, I'm trying to write something not about war, um, but about some of the strategic decisions in the, in the making of the digital age, if that makes any sense. Uh, so why did the transistor develop the way it did and lead to, to microprocessors? Why did hobbyists uh, produce the first home computers? Those sort of questions, which lots of people have dealt with, and it's I'm probably silly to um, think I can say anything new about it, but it just interests me that uh, I, I sort of know a bit about it, but not enough, and it's an area that's interesting. So I'm toying with that, and I'm also toying with a, a more mainstream thing for me, I suppose, doing something on, on command, on, on the concept of command, uh, which is very important in the military sphere, but latest thinking on command is quite interested by thinking in the business sphere, so that, that's also something. But I'm, I'm in the unusual position of having finished the books I was committed to do, so uh, uh, actually quite enjoying myself reading around trying to get some ideas well if you move forward with either of those i'm going to be incredibly excited i think i'm going to have to fly over there hopefully we, we can <laughs> sit down in person and do this but i know you mentioned you're active on twitter anywhere else the listeners can stay connected with you which is the main thing i i, I i'm quite i mean they, they have to be pretty interested in brexit at the moment <laughs> uh because that's what we're all obsessed with that over here but i i do tweet quite a lot on um on international conflicts and so on, as, as, as well as our own problems. Uh, and I mean, I like Twitter because it also appeals to uh, my sense of humor as well. There's lots of nasty stuff on Twitter, but, but by and large, uh, uh, I found it pretty refreshing. Well, we'll have that linked up, but I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. I've enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're gonna receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. 
They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.